We had a motley array of neighbors. On one side, a German who could scarce speak English, married to a Bohemian who could speak little English and no German. On another side, a family of Swedes fresh from the old country. On an adjoining farm, a Scotsman with a Missouri wife. Nearby, a family from Iowa, another family from Illinois, some old, some young, some illiterate, some well-educated, yet all engaged in the same enterprise. As more and more railroads expanded into the West, an intense competition between them began. Settlers were sought who would provide business for their freight trains and buy the land the railroads had been given as government subsidies. You can lay track to the Garden of Eden, said the head of the Northern Pacific, but what good is it if the only inhabitants are Adam and Eve? Western states also contended with one another for new residents. The Homestead Act promised 160 acres of public land to any person who filed a claim, paid a $10 fee, and agreed to work the property for five years. In the 1870s, Kansas grew by more than half a million people. Nebraska's population quadrupled. 200 Scottish families settled on the Kansas-Nebraska border. The Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society lured Jews from Eastern Europe to Oregon, Colorado, Kansas, the Dakotas. German-Russian Mennonites, Swedish, Dutch, French, Bohemian, Irish, and Norwegian families were soon scattered across the plains. In the villages of Europe, you might be only a few steps away from your neighbor. Certainly within hearing distance, you could hear the village's church bells ringing on a Sunday morning. Suddenly here, they were isolated many miles from neighbors and from villages with long periods of time between any kind of interaction. They had wind sickness, they called it, from the constant blowing of the wind. They planted trees around their houses, not simply for the shade or for the beauty, but to protect them from the immensity of the, the landscape. They started towns like Lindsborg and Hafnungstall, New Alexanderval and Dannebrog, some with the same street plans as their old villages in Europe. And they planted wheat they had brought along from as far away as Russia. It flourished as no other domestic crop ever had before on the semi-arid plains and would one day help make the United States the agricultural wonder of the world. The men had farmed in many cases most of their lives. They'd had to struggle against roots and rocks and all of these things that made farming difficult. They looked around them here and there were thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres without a root or a rock. They could put their plow in the ground and go miles and miles straight ahead without worrying about a hill. This was grass, ground, earth that had never been turned in all of history except maybe by a buffalo's horn. They said the first time a plow went through that ground, it sounded like the opening of a giant zipper from the grassroots tearing as the plow went through it. 
To them, this was a dream come true. Hello there, pull up a chair. Have a lot to go over today. And because I recorded the next two segments first before what I'm saying now, I want to explain what those two segments are about so we'll be clear because there's things that I said in those segments which will tie together. So the first segment will be about the general homesteading that went on specifically in Montana. Only Montana because that is where my family came from so that's where I was looking. I have been learning a great deal about things through all this research. And what I've also learned is that I'm not into all of this money stuff. So here's the plan. If you want to help me, that's terrific. If you don't, fine. It doesn't have to turn into anything about me or about you. Let's just be clear about that, okay? Money is their game. I've never played their game, and it has caught up with me <laughs> because I tended to always spend what I had to help other causes. So yeah, but it's it's not a big deal. I'm not clinging to it, and I don't choose to want to get into that behavior trap. That trap is all over social media, stuff like, well, if you want to get more access to me, then join my Patreon. Not going to keep going there. I'm going to start recording all these shows about what I know, and here's the reason why. I am learning a great deal about myself, my own family, and how all of this played together into kind of this mass um, deal going on with people now. Really, people were ripped away from their families. They did a sense of unknowing by not knowing. You know what I mean? A lot of mass movement of people. A lot of people are confused. But money's not my thing. So, And also, they're going to be closing the prison walls here pretty quickly here. Um, China's in pretty big trouble. Um, yeah, so there's a lot going on. So I've also got to consider um, it takes upload time and I can't have interruptions. And it takes just a lot more time. So those are all irrelevant issues at this point. I have shows to record. It also helps me a great deal because when I, I love this new way of just doing them in real time because it also is helping me process things, which you'll find when you listen to the show about Montana, kind of interesting that they actual had all the insane asylums already erected and ready to go before the first mass movement of people. But anyway, so yeah, so I find it all fascinating. Like for example, I never knew my grandparents um, on either side. And the, the only thing, my grandparents on my mother's side were the ones who homesteaded in Montana. And they're the ones I'll be talking about in the second part of this show today, because the first part will be the general homesteading. And then next will be the um, some actual stories from homesteaders that are in this book that I found from my mother and her cousin Bruce. Now, either my mother and her cousin Bruce were hanging around an incredible amount of liars, <laughs> or there's a lot of information that I've been able to learn to try to pin down a date for all this stuff, right? How long has this magic trick been going on? So as I start to unleash more um, research, I would suggest strongly that you follow along and not try to skip around or it'll be harder for you to follow because no, I will not be doing any recaps. So anyway, so yeah, it'll be to your advantage to follow along. And the, the 
other main reason for just doing audio, besides my extreme distaste for all things that are YouTube and the child marketing business, has to do with audio is the first step to producing the show. Audio still takes a great deal of time to upload, but when you have to convert that to a video file, it's a huge deal. And also, there are a lot of people in other countries who have download problems to begin with. So audio serves all of our needs. Also, you can download audio shows and it doesn't matter if the internet is on or off, you can still listen to those shows. I mean, unless those things have changed, I don't know, but people in other countries know how to do all this. In this country, we have been spoiled by having constant internet access. Now, will all that change? I don't know, likely, but remember, they have themselves on the grid too. So these are very poor planners, okay? I have said for years the exact same things. They've got us surrounded, they're making this up as they go along, and they have very poor long-term thinking skills. And the further I go along into this research, it becomes a reality every day, right? Because I can see the way that they have diminished their own brain power through all of this. And I'll be getting into more of that. And one thing, I do apologize for the Dracula deal. I was talking about the Dracula movie as 1939, but it was 1919, and it was that Count, um, the Bulogosi guy, that famous actor. It was the very first Dracula movie you're looking for. Why did I confuse the dates? Well, because 1939 was another key critical time in this brainwashing machine they had going on. So that's why my brain was saying 1939, but it was the first one. And another thing, you know, in the last show, I re referenced that we came down from heaven. Well, did we come down from heaven? I don't know. What's up? What's down? I refuse to really... Um, identify with any of these terms at this point because my view right now is if we came down from heaven what is this anything but hell <laughs> I mean words matter okay and these people have been doing these exact same patterns with these buildings the monuments the old castles and I will get into that because I have reviewed all of them and there's some pretty distinct patterns. But before I get to all of those, you know, in the next few weeks or whatever, and don't let the amount of shows, I will release them as I have the funds to release them. So here's the thing. Take a little trip of your own, okay? For example, look into the mess they have going on in Dubai. In Dubai, they have built these islands with these crazy places that have... It, anyway, go look. Just do a search on YouTube for Dubai crazy locations, okay? They have in, done this whole massive structure. Look around at China. All those huge buildings with this Evergrande thing that they're now blowing up. I believe they are blowing up a lot of those places. I believe China does have a lot of ghost cities going on now because that was the way they robbed their citizens by getting them to all invest in real estate. So yeah, so look around. For example, in Dubai, they've got this huge mess of all this construction. Even today, they're making huge monstrous statues in some of these countries. Russia, all over the place. Monstrous Buddhas, thousands of feet high. That is being done today. 
So if you believe that gold on all those statues from the past, you have to ask yourself, well, hey, wait a minute, they're doing the same things today. So yeah, these are trash and cash gypsies. That is all they are. Who else would put up big buildings with penis structures, okay? Let's, let's be adults in this language here, okay? These are women that were all the upper range people, I can say 100% are women with wigs that were transferred at a very early stage or in vitro, okay? So we've got a bunch of women without penises putting up big, tall penis buildings. These people love awards. I mean, how many, how many award shows could they possibly hold for themselves? When they get up to a microphone, it has, they will spend, watch, watch these people and pay attention, okay? When they go to pass a bill or do anything, they are so busy patting themselves on the back, thanking each other, that really they'll start off this thing thanking so many of each other that people just don't even notice that it's all about thanking themselves. Um, the mayor of New York, um, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, was talking about the need for the workers to come back into the city to work. He actually... <laughs> He actually made some pretty interesting revelations about how these low-class, unskilled workers might want to hop to and get back into these cities because without these low-skilled, uneducated workers, well, all the rich people won't show up back into those big financial buildings. So yeah, they're saying a lot of things. We just have to listen. For example, all of the liars, not everybody doing this Tartaria deal is a liar, okay? there is a group of them which are clearly CIA directed. They have an agenda and that a lot of people are just glomming on to that deal thinking, oh, look what they've destroyed. Well, if you don't understand who they are, then it all becomes a bunch of mush in your head, right? And your only two points of reference are as weak as that whole Bohemian Grove deal. So they don't tend to even have to put out a lot of evidence to get these stories to gather legs. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion over people say, well, you know, the castle's here, the castle's there. Well, I mean, let's not be idiots, okay? They, <laughs> people are uncovering a lot of castle-like buildings in this country, like those old asylums and stuff, right? Well, there's a lot of flaws in that thinking, and I'll get more into that later. But they like those huge, old, big, ugly buildings, okay? That is their deal, they, they got that idea from Transylvania with the Gothic building design. All they did was this. They started calling some of these designs Neo-Gothic and Neo-Colonial or Romanesque. Neo-Gothic neo or Neo-Romanesque. What that means is the new Romanesque. Well, <laughs> how would you consider this? The fact that uh, they also have this other Gothic stuff and Romanist that they claim was from like, I don't know, before people were walking or breathing like from 200 AD or whatever that stuff means, right? So all they've done is just flip the words around, right? To create less confusion. So yeah, I, I can pin a date on this. And the only way I'm gonna do that is if I keep rolling along and not bothering myself with all of this functional stuff that they created having to do with money. So 
Yeah, so they give themselves awards. They they have, um, through this whole process, through this home studying and stuff, I mean, every generation did so poorly that they then they created the next generation of people that they wanted the best for their children. So they started believing that their children should become burdened by debt to go to college to get into that club. Well, none of us were ever allowed into that club, okay? The only reason I survived like I did in the technology world was because I was an outside consultant after I left Intel. I didn't have anybody with any ability to get any hooks into me. They got their hooks into me when I worked at Intel because they got their hooks into everybody. But I just decided to leave and go do my own thing. Yeah, they got their hooks into me a couple of times. Um, and that's how it worked. And what that also does is that had I stayed in that environment, I would have for sure gotten passed over for the bigger jobs, right? Because that is how it works. So you get a history of people getting used to being passed over. So what they do is they pour every bit of their heart, their hopes, and their dreams into their children having a better life. So yeah, so we have been set on this this is control trajectory of how we have lived our own lives directed by these psychopaths. So yeah, this is who they are. This is exactly who they are. And control and isolation are their biggest tricks. They have essentially, and you have to decide about this for yourself. They have essentially, what they did to those homesteaders by putting them off into isolated parts of Montana certainly gives for a lot better crowd control, right? A better way to introduce floods of orphan trains that happen to be stopping at those homesteading places. Everybody needed helping hands around the farms. So yeah, so, um, and they were obviously doing some introduction of some hormone use into people because I can tell that by the body shapes. So yeah, there's just a lot to unpack here, but none of it has been hidden. That's the crazy part, right? They like to brag about what they're doing. And even through some of these crazy Tartaria stories, I nailed exactly what they're doing, right? They're doing a form of magic. Well, these people doing these, the main people doing these Tartaria stories are directly agents, okay? And I'm not just guessing there, okay? Just use your heads. Um, yeah, they're agents that everybody loves, and um, they're leading out some clues, which I find very significant. But what they're doing is they're leaving out a lot of other stuff to control your time. So yeah, so there's a lot there with what form of magic they've been using. Um, what does this above and below business mean? Um, how they've manipulated us? So they are, in fact, making it up as they go along. So anyway, so I've said enough right now. I would encourage you to listen to these next couple of um, segments. And then I'll have a magic song at the end of it all for you. Magic has been the driving force behind all of this in some very interesting ways. So anyway, so enough of that. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now. pull up a chair. Today I'm going to be talking about Montana and then I will be giving you a little bit of the background now and then 
I will then be telling you a story from some homesteaders from Germany that ended up in Montana in the early 1800s. And then I will conclude with my thoughts about where all this could possibly go. I'm at the end of what I'm going to be able to do here. So let me share this story because, you know, I often talk about how we get here. Why is there so much apathy right now? It can't all be the programming, right? It has to be... It has to be a lot of other reasons, but I don't really know what those other reasons are. And there seems to be this thing that it's easier to call me crazy or needing a breast, when in reality, you know, you haven't seen what I've seen. And I haven't even shared with you even a tiny bit about it because the time hasn't been right yet. I'm just now getting to there where I feel able to discuss fully what's going on. And so today, and you know, that's really a deflective tactic, okay? When you start thinking the other person is this or that, maybe take a look inside. There's a lot of things we can all do here to work together. And when I was struck by this thing about Montana, it was really impressed me about my grandparents. I really didn't know them well. Um, my father being in the military, we traveled, you know, we moved around a lot. And I really, you know, they were really surviving this had to have some real strength on their part and sadly I look around now and I don't know we've all become a bunch of helpless kittens by the side of the road in a basket with no idea about what to do and this story about um, about Montana also shows what one trick ponies they are they've been doing the same things for so long that it's just hard to keep saying this okay it's like all this stuff with this Tartaria business okay well, everybody is stumped about, well, there's a lot of buildings in this country that look like European castles and stuff, right? Well, they have the same thing in Europe, right? Where everybody's puzzled. Well, they're one-trick ponies. You really think they're going to uh, pay for new building designs in every country? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, you should hear. It's like, you know, yeah, sure, they had to discover all these castles. Discovered them, right? All these castles from the 1800s. Well... <laughs> I hate to tell you, but this is all a magic trick, okay? So be baffled by it all, all you want, but the facts remain the facts, okay? And it isn't about me being crazy or needing sleep. So I would prefer not to engage on that level because it just is not productive. I think we can learn a lot from these people because talk about a group of people, and this is just my view, okay? A group of people who got totally stiffed by the system I mean, they gave it all. They moved to one of the most... Montana was never meant for farming, okay? Anyway, so the thing is, is that all these people got duped into moving there. So, yeah, then they, you know, they stuck it out. They survived. So it really shows a lot of early survival on these people's part. So let me give you a little bit about the history here. Um, what's interesting, because as part of the American West, the most... Notable and soon-to-be-formed territory was called Montana. Montana would ultimately become the most heavily homesteaded state in America under the original Homestead Act. There was a few different Homestead Acts. The first one, and I'll be telling you the story after I go through this, um, the first Free Homestead Act of 1862 entitled anyone who filed who filed to a quarter section of land. So in it, you could file and get a quarter section of land. And at that time, it was 160 acres. 
there were some provisions and a person had to do what was called proved up the land. Proved up. Proving up meant living on the land for five years. Otherwise, after living on the land for six months, homesteaders could choose to buy it outright for a dollar. So they, they changed these rules from 62. They, they gave them less acres in 62 because it wasn't quite working out. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, they got people to go there. They got them to prove they were going to stay. They got them to live on the land for five years before they were able to buy it for a dollar and a quarter an acre, right? So, and what was interesting was that there's areas of Montana, east of Montana, where the average rainfall is much higher than the areas they were settling, okay? 160 acres was plenty of land to support a family and produce an abundance of crops. And that's what my mom's family did. They never had any money. They lived on their homestead and my grandfather worked and they had horses and stuff and they lived off of what they were able to survive on. And they didn't leave Montana until the 40s. They moved to California, my grandparents did. I mean, they stuck it out for a pretty long time. I, I don't know how many people that I would honestly say could live in Montana from 1919 to 1940 and not have buckled, okay? So Montana is high desert plateaus, and it can be difficult to find water for irrigation. The same 160 acres, which will produce abundant crops in places like Kansas or Nebraska, falls short of what they were getting in Montana. So what happened was they developed new seed varieties and farming techniques known as dry land farming. It was never meant to be farmed, right? Eventually helped eastern Montana to yield some of the best wheat in the entire country for a while. Wait for the end of that. After the Free Homestead Act, which enacted people, rushed out to stake their claims. But they didn't really rush to Montana at first. Montana is the 100th meridian, which runs through Nebraska, and was considered the farthest point west where people could still farm without irrigation. Soon, farms east of the 100th meridian were filling up. Slowly, settlers began drifting into places like Montana, Wyoming, and Utah, Clearly, everybody rushed to Nebraska and Kansas because they realized they needed water to grow crops, right? Probably why they recruited in Germany, but I will not jump ahead here. So, Montana's first homestead entry was made by a woman in 1868 on the outskirts of Helena, which is the present-day capital of Montana. The first person to cultivate grain in the state was the Jesuit father Desmond. Desmond grew grain to supply his mission in the Bitterroot Valley and to teach agriculture to the local Indian population. I'm still mixed on that whole Indian deal, but anyways. As the dry western states began receiving more and more homesteaders, it became clear that this person, John Wesley Powell, had been right. 160 acres couldn't support much but a couple cows and a small garden, certainly not enough to make a living on. So in 1877, Congress passed the Desert Land Act. 
this gave 640 acres, four times what the Free Homestead Act allowed, to any claimant who irrigated the land within three years. The person had to pay 25 cents per acre up front and an additional dollar per acre after they'd done the irrigation work. This act appealed to cattle companies, and many companies moved in and started up, which obviously all those cattle fouled up whatever small ability those poor people had to farm. These companies would often pay men to claim the land. In turn, the company built him a small cabin and irrigated the place. After three years, the claimant then transferred title to the land into that company's name. How is it that we're always, always, always doing all of their work, right? The idea behind the Desert Land Act was to reclaim some western lands not considered suitable for settlement. Ranchers often had small orchards, a nice garden, and a few chickens to sustain themselves. We know now that this act contributed to overgrazing and a change in native vegetation. This is what always gets me about people's confusion about these gypsies, okay? They have a distinct pattern of burning and ripping up places, okay? Look at the cities of Detroit. Look at where they trash and burn places. Look at where they did. They have this history, right? And some of these geniuses with this Tartaria stuff are marveling at why do we have buildings in this country that look like European castles? Well, folks, because they were all built around the 1800s, okay? <laughs> And these cheap magic tricksters didn't want to have to do new architectural designs. It's usually the simple answer, not the complicated one, right? So they were trying to reclaim this one. So they already had a problem with the ranchers came in and were stampeding out the homesteaders with these cows and stuff, right? And that gets back to this blood thing, which hopefully I'll get back to all this eating of cows and stuff. So anyway, so... Then Congress passed the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909, which doubled the free land to settlers to 320 acres. See, they'll always do as little as they can to get us in line, right? In 1912, Congress went even farther, lowering the required waiting period for land acquisition from five to three years while also permitting homesteaders to be absent from their lands five months of each year. Together, these laws generated an eager response, ensuring that nearly 32 million acres of Montana land would pass from public to private hands. This is how it got started. Well, the 1800s people, they supposedly didn't have newspapers and so they weren't able to lure them with the same method. But anyways, equally significant in attracting homesteaders were the aggressive promotional campaigns by area boosters. During the early 1900s, transcontinentals, railroads like the Northern Pacific, the Great Northern, and the Milwaukee Road spent millions publicizing the region. With impressive agriculture display trains and a host of colorful leaflets and brochures, they encouraged immigrants. Yeah, all of a sudden they seem to have come up with full color printing by that point, right? Imagine how that happened. Just imagine how that happened. Especially Germans and Scandinavians. 
they sent them all this fancy literature, right? To see what they do is they starve us out and then they throw us trinkets. And then typically everybody grabs the trinkets and they forget they got tricked the last time. So they wanted the Germans and Scandinavians to embrace a new life of farming in what some now have equivalently billed as the treasure state. For as little as $22.50, a homesteader could rent a freight car to bring his family and all their belongings from St. Paul, Minnesota to eastern Montana. So that's how a lot of them got there. But because Montana has three water areas, a lot of them may have come by boat in the early times. I mean, a boat makes a lot more sense than wagon trains, right? So these people in Germany and stuff were hypnotized by the powerful sway of a well-financed propaganda machine, one-trick ponies. Homesteaders then flooded into Montana. Between 1900 and 1909, a veritable Tusami of settlers descended upon the state, rushing westward across the High Line area north of the Missouri River and engulfing the broad valleys that fed the Yellowstone River. Dozens of new boom towns like Wolf Point, Glasgow, Malta, Harvey, Plentywood, Jordan. A lot of these are names that came out of Germany, Malta, Glasgow. Anyway, so homesteading life was anything but easy. Many newcomers erected sod houses constructed from grassy slabs of topsoil. Others built cramped one-room shanties out of rough-cut lumber, covering them in tar paper and insulating them with dirty rags and discarded newspapers. Mice, snakes, and grasshoppers were a constant torment. Some families traveled up to 25 miles to cut fence posts, find firewood, or dig coal on the prairies of eastern Montana. With these crude accommodations, homesteaders faced the blistering heat, choking dust storms, and sub-zero cold of Montana's often inhospitable plains. There was a story from a local woman. Isolation on this harsh and forlorn landscape often took its toll. She went on to say, I have stood in the doorway of our shack with my heart full of sadness and loneliness and listen to the wind, wrote Sue Hollins. It is an incessant, screeching, whining, and screaming wind, and it seems to be heard nowhere except in Montana on the homestead. During these hardships, many carved out a meaningful life during Montana's homestead boom, and the effects of their commitment were readily apparent. The state's population exploded from 243,000 people to 376,000. That is a lot of people in a couple of years period in that area of the country. And the aggregate number of farms doubled during the 20th century's first decade. By 1910, the in income generated by agriculture surpassed that of mining. But this was just the beginning. In the years following this initial burst of excitement, nature and global politics 
worked hand in hand to beguile even more homesteaders to the big sky country. They were catching on, right? If you don't think that, uh, oh, let me get in a minute here. The period of greatest settlement during the homestead boom was also a time of generally ample and well-timed rainfall in typically drought-stricken northern and eastern Montana. Funny how they get them in there, right, at a time when it was well-timed rainfall, right? Well, if you don't think that they were manipulating the weather back then, I think that you probably need to pay a little bit closer attention. <laughs> they've known a lot of things they've been pulling on us, okay? This is part of the plan of the system, not the bug. And how they knew it and how they did it is actually quite fascinating. But they knew back then because otherwise they set these people up in the early 1900s, okay? And at that time, abundant wheat harvests were commonplace. In 1909, total wheat production reached almost 11 million barrels. But in the year they call the miracle year of 1915, it totaled more than 42 million bushels. So we went from 11 million bushels, and in the miracle year, they had 42 million bushels. Good times are here again. Making homestead life even more prosperous was the coming of the War to End All Wars, which ravaged Europe between 1914 and 1980, and that would be World War One which dramatically increased European demands and artificially inflated grain prices to unprecedented levels. Montana's high-protein hard spring and winter wheat held top rank in the booming international markets, according to these historians. And that part is all true. Each homesteader, each homesteader from a hundred... I don't care about that. Um, oh. Oh, yeah, okay. It was required that one-eighth of the land be continuously cultivated for agriculture crops rather than native grass. And they said that Montana's weather tends to come in cycles. Well, yeah, and aided by them, right? They might receive 10 or 20 years of wet weather followed by 10 or 20 years of dry weather it just so happened that 1909 fell during a wet cycle. As soon as more free land was available and prospects looked good for farming, their first wave of immigrants, they called them honey rockers, flowed into Montana. Three years later, in 1912, Congress, now they've made Montana look like a little gold mine, right? Um, Congress dropped the proving up time from five years to three years. More than 80,000 homesteaders moved into Montana between 1909 and the early 1920s. By the late 1920s, 60,000 of them had either packed up and left or were sent off to fight in World War I. So they got up to 80,000 in the early 1920s. It dropped down to 20,000 and 60,000 pretty much fled or joined the war. So 
they went on to say both farmers and ranchers had exploited the land during the wet years. Of course, they're going to blame the farmers, right? They'd overgrazed and overfarmed and spread themselves too thin. Of course, banks then sprang up and new counties were formed almost on a whim. No one realized that when the rain subsided, all that free land would come back to haunt them. So let me tell you a little story about the early days in Montana in the Montana State Hospital. Fascinating story. The story goes on to say, if you drive by the Montana State Hospital today, you probably won't give it a second look. A plain, modern building sits next to a sign directing guests to the visitor's interest or to admissions. And nothing about it really stands out. But as Montana's first and longest-running publicly operated psychiatric hospital, it got a long, complicated history. These things all turned into um, these asylums and stuff. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, what I haven't talked about in research yet, but they basically turned into amusements. People could go by and pay money and go visit them. Montana State Hospital was founded by the territorial government in 1877. Gives us a pretty good year to work with, right? Because I know that I had a relative that died in this place, right? My mom's great aunt died in, I believe it was this asylum here, right? So, this asylum was 1877, which was 12 years before Montana became a state. Boy, they were really rushing in there to lock us up, weren't they, before they even became a state? Um, in 1869, the 6th Montana Territorial Legislative Assembly passed a law authorizing an official territorial insane asylum to be owned and managed on a contract basis by private parties. A board of commissioners was established with one representative from each judicial district to oversee the asylum, establish rules for its operation, and perform periodic inspections. Until 1877, the hospital in St. Helena served as a territorial asylum. I don't know if they changed names or not, but in 1874, it was acceptedly, they had accepted a sufficient number of patients to require the construction of a separate building behind the main hospital. So in 1869 through 18, they're already cooking up nut words for us, right? Yeah. And this is a great democracy, right? Disguised as an open-air prison. In 1877, this Dr. Mitchell guy and some other doctor, red flags, doctors, snakes in those logos, owners of a hotel and spa were awarded the contract for the care of the territory's mental patients. In 1866, the partners, remember there was what? I don't know, not that many people in the whole area, right? <laughs> If they hadn't burned all the census reports, I might be able to tell you. In 1886, the partners had expanded their operation from 160 acres to 1,640 acres and from two buildings to 32 buildings, including a larger hotel, a house for convalescents, 
a separate building for violent patients, a large plunge pool, a laundry, storehouses, ice houses, and many other outbuildings. From 1891 to 1907, the hospital was run by this Dr. Warren, and he was succeeded by some other guy. It was under private operation. The hotel continued to be run by the asylum, and they ran a large farm specializing in pedigreed cattle. I'll get back to more of this later if anybody wants to hear more about how we got here. Um, these early institutions were totally worked by the people that were institutionalized. They became cash cows. So people who were in the institutions did all the work to cover for all the expenses. And the only reason they closed down, and I know I'm jumping ahead of my skis here a little bit, but the only reason these asylums actually shut down was because they invented pills. And when they started giving people medication, well, they were doing other things to begin with. I'm not going to get into now, but the pills that Big Pharma introduced was what made the asylums no longer work as planned because the people then all were on the pills and were not able to function. That's what those pills do, right? They take you out of society into some other world in your head, right? So yeah, that's why those asylums shut down. But let me get back to the story at hand. In 1924, Montana State Hospital made headlines when it discovered that 11 inmates had been forcefully sterilized. Hospital staff reported that all sterilizations had been approved and that eugenics was necessary for Montana's future. A total of, I don't know if these numbers are true or not, but people got sterilized by Montana's eugenics program from 1923 until 1954. I was born in 1951, so these programs went on for, what, 70 years or so? Well, no, they only stopped them about 65 years ago, right? Not that long ago. They said eugenics, the idea that human perfection could be developed through selective breeding, grew in popularity in the early 20th century, including support for forced sterilization. I have to kind of wonder, you know, all these people, and I'll be telling this story from some actual settlers from Germany next, all these people came rushing over here from Europe, and my grandparents, they, they, they were in Iowa or somewhere like that, and they hopped on the train to Montana. But you got to kind of wonder, right? They got all these, um, the, the biggest immigration time was early 1900s. They were trying to sell them all into going to Montana. <clears throat> well, they got the first group there in the 1800s, right? And there couldn't have been that many people there. So they get that first group there. They're already constructing mental wards. Then they go and they recruit a whole bunch of people from Europe and, I don't know, do the math. I mean, the wards are already there. So if you make it all the way to Montana and they think <laughs> they don't want you, how easy would it be to get you to work the land for a while, steal the stuff, and then put you in a crazy ward, right? So the logic behind these crazy wards start to make a little sense to me, right? So, um, yeah, um the movement reached its zenith in Montana in the early 1930s, and despite growing concerns, the practice of forced sterilizations continued into the 1970s. Montanians' support for forced sterilization was part of a national trend. 
there was this eugenics proponent that I ran across, a guy named Albert E. Wiggum. He was a national lecturer, and he tr and he was also a trained psychologist. He helped spread the eugenics gospel in Montana through a column in the local paper, which is called the Missoulian. He said, Already we are taxing ourselves for asylums and hospitals and jails to take care of millions who ought never to have been born, Wigan wrote. Many Montanans agreed and included the Helena mother who wrote the state hospital in 1924. She wrote in 1924 in support of sterilization. I hope some of this is starting to make sense to you, right? Because they introduced money. Money became a way to get other people to turn on the people they felt were less desirable. So it then became okay to sterilize them. See how we all kind of got here? And now everybody's talking about all they just do is text each other, right? So, yeah. So um, let me get back to the, what this woman said. Already we are taxing ourselves for asylums and hospitals and jails. But the, the, the flaw here in the thinking is that those inmates were paying for those facilities, but they were still paying taxes. See, what they do is they get the public to pay taxes, and then they basically just steal all the money. They've been doing that with the homeless just for years now. They get empathetic people to agree to pay taxes to find housing for homeless people, and then, of course, they just steal it all, right, and people live on the streets. That is the plan, not the bug, right? So anyway, so... It went on to say, many Montanans agreed, including the Helena mother who wrote. She said, she wrote in support of sterilization policies. I am a taxpayer. That means I wish there was no insane, no feeble-minded, and no criminals to support and to fear. The very fact that these people are inmates of state institutions proves that they are morally or mentally unfit to propagate their kind. Early fascinating control. Anyway, I'll read this story next, and then I will conclude after the story with my final thoughts here about where I'm going next with all this stuff. First, I'd like to tell you a real quick story and then a little bit longer story and I'll try my best not to flick the pages around your ears. The first story was written by my mother about their history in Montana. Will Lander, that was my grandfather, my mother was a Lander and she married an Emerson. <laughs> Where they all came from, who knows. Anyway, so Will was born February 18, 1888. Boy, a lot of eights in that name, right? in a place called What Cheer, Iowa. Will, along with his mother and brothers, moved to Norbert, Montana. Will met Georgie Carr, that was my grandmother, who was born October 9, 1896, in Rainsford, Montana. And they were married January 15, 1916. So, yeah, um, they lived the first few years on the bench, I don't understand what that means, before moving to Lander Creek, that was the place where they homesteaded, in the early 1920s, joining Walter and Will's mother, Josephine, as residents there. 
Will and Georgie had seven children, the firstborn August 23, 1917, and the seventh was born January 7, 1932. Because the ranches were a considerable distance from one another, the Landers realized very little social activity. One colorful, infrequent visitor entertained the children with his tales of fact and, and fiction. Georgie was busy caring for the children without the conveniences of electricity and running water, along with the burden of cooking for hired help during the wheat harvest. Will worked long hours in the wheat fields, the alfalfa fields with the milk cows. Also, in addition to keeping the machinery functioning and tending to the animals that needed medical attention. During these years preceding the World War II, farming conditions were tough due to national economic problems, inconveniences, and lack of luxuries. At that point, Georgie took the children and went to California in 1939 and decided to return to Montana, convinced Will to move, and they all packed up and moved. Yeah, they hung in there for a lot of years, didn't they? Anyway, so let me get to this other story. This other story is just something else. Um, it really tells what these people went through. Okay, this is a story about a family called Lehman. L-E-H-M-A-N-N. It's the Frank A. Lehman story. Frank A. Lehman or more accurately, Franz August Lehman in the German, was born October 31, 1875 in Bramstetter, Holstein, Germany. He was the fifth child and third son of Franz August Lehman and Marie Dorothea um, Scoburn of Charlesburg, Germany. Little is known of the family history or of his childhood. His mother was widowed when he was three, just a few months after the birth of a younger sister. She raised her six children by her own labors. Later, when the family was older, she remarried one Carl Zoring. Nothing is known of his family history. The family grew up knowing the hardships of real poverty which seems to have developed the necessary ambition and determined desire to rise above conditions which accentuated their further actions. In my fa this, is, this is this woman talking about her father, not mine. In my father's case, and that of one brother, coming to America in hopes of bettering their circumstances, in early teens the sons were placed in neighboring farms as helpers, where they received the experience and training which labor later enabled them to carry on the toils and hardships incident to homesteading. In accordance with requirements of the military laws of Germany of that time, the boys were all required to serve two years of strict military training and discipline, which my father completed between his 19th and 21st years. He married on November the 8th, 1898, in Elmshorn, Holstein, Germany. He married a woman, her last name was Rang, W-R-A-G-E, daughter of Wilhelm Rang of Barnstead, Holstein, Germany. They lived in a flat in Elmshorn where my father was employed in a gas and coke making concern, 
work which he found very disagreeable and which undermined his health and stamina greatly. Two children were born at this place to them. Marie and Wilhelm Catherine, this is the woman speaking, Wilhelm Catherine is her name, Marie died within five months of birth of pneumonia. During my infancy, they moved into acreage. They built a large chicken house, also raising some grain. Here was born Frank, now of Hackladen, Idaho, and Christine at present of Washington. Father's health continued to fail, and his discontent with his lot generally increased to the extent that it affected his earnings capabilities. Mother had begun peddling eggs in Hamburg daily to help out family income needs. When Jürgen Engelset, a former German neighbor of that community, made a visit to his former German home, his stories of his successful ranch operations as sheep man, let me get this page open here. I'm trying to read this book and not rack it all out. Okay. Okay, his stories of successful ranch operations as sheep man. So, okay. Sheep man, so fired our folks with a desire to come to America that they borrowed what additional passage money they needed in addition with what little savings they had and father took passage in march 1907 for new york his planned destination being alberta canada however on the way over father was prevailed on to change his plans and he went to work as general ranch hand for the benton sheep company of this Arthur guy, whose buildings were located a day's wagon journey east of Fort Benson, Montana, in the General Square Butte area. Butte area is part of Montana. So mother was left alone with her three children to carry on her egg peddling business. So the family was left in Germany. The mother was selling eggs to survive, okay? And she was trying to save something toward passage money for her immigration to follow her husband. Our people were God-fearing folks of the German Lutheran faith. Father was also a member of an order known as Knights of the Good Templar. They had purchased the home where they were living at the time of their leaving Germany. Which home was this home was sold just prior to mother's and our leaving there on September 21. 1907. I have a very disconnected memory of the trip on board ship. We came in the steamer Pretoria and were 14 days at sea. So now we know Germany to here was actually 14 days. I mean, the other option, this woman could be just a terrible liar, right? <laughs> I don't think so. But. So all but the baby was sick for the seasick. We disembarked at Ellis Island, port of entry for immigrants in New York Harbor, and spent much of one weary, unpleasant day getting vaccinated and seeing to such other requirements as were legally necessary before actual entry. All of this under the difficulty of not knowing the English language and three children under six to look after. I had four months of schooling in Germany before we left, and just can remember some few details of that experience. 
It took five days to cross the country from New York to Fort Benton, Montana by train. Okay. One very trying experience mother underwent during the trip was having two of the little ones nearly trampled underfoot by the anxious horde going from one trade to another in Chicago. Another was a layover of a day in Havre, during which she was troubled by the attentions of a big, burly Negro cook. However, we arrived safely in Fort Benton, where Father met us at the depot. We drove quite some distance over a muddy road to spend the night with the family of Henry Hagen and his wife Joanna, a German-speaking carpenter who lived in a white-framed cottage on the banks of the Missouri River in Fort Benton, about two blocks beyond the park and the Grand Union Hotel. From there, we left next morning for the sheep ranch where Father was employed. I recall that we children sat on a plant across a wagon bed of the spring wagon and remember being frightened of crossing a wide creek just as it entered the Missouri River. She went on to say, I think it was Shonkin Creek. My curiosity did cause me to lean over too far and I fell from the plant out of the wagon, luckily with no injuries. We stopped at noon on one of the sheep camps, a tent where the herder lived. I recall seeing Father opening a can of tomatoes and eating them with sugar, a delicacy which we were totally unfamiliar with. I liked them. Mother and Brother Frank did not. Upon our arrival that evening, we were housed in what was known as a bunkhouse, a one-room log cabin. A one-room log cabin, our meals of course, we ate at the main ranch house. Mother did the cooking and general housework there. Father seemed to be a sort of general ranch foreman. Mother became so homesick immediately upon arrival that she could not adjust to the circumstances she found them in this place. So the family did not stay there long. Sometime during the late fall or early winter months, Father moved up to Whitlash, Montana, another sheep ranch. Their mother had only her family needs to meet. In other words, she was didn't have to do all the other farmhand work, right? I guess moving from doing all the work to just managing one log cabin probably seemed like a break, right? So father herded the sheep and did the feeding through the balance of the winter months. I remember only vaguely it being rolling hill country and seeing the border line between Montana and Canada. I recall being out with Father one evening just at sundown, and he sent me to crawl under a fence to the other side so I could say I had been in Canada. Early in March in the following spring, the family moved to a job with the Great Northwestern Livestock Company, as it was then known, where Father went to work as ranch foreman for Henry Evers. Mostly sheep, but also some cows, horses, chickens, and haying operation, being most of the experiences he had learned while there. Mother cooked for the ranch hands, usually just one man except during the spring lambing and harvest periods. They first they worked first at Shonkin, Montana, the home ranch, and then at the upper ranch, a short distance from which father homesteaded. A family of Indians lived in tents just over the hill from the upper ranch house that summer above the haying season. We were quite horrified to learn they ate skunk and rattler fresh, meaning snakes. It was a while living there that I started school in the old log school house up there called 
Keister Creek, as we often called it. Okay, it was spring in the Missouri River, and the Missouri, the Missouri was in flood. The bridge at Fort Benton washed away. Father had gone by horseback to meet the train on which his brother, August, was arriving from Germany. It, get, it got a little confusing there, but I'm trying to pick it up here. It was dark and raining when he reached the Missouri River across from the town. The horse shied at the, Brit, as the, at the Brit, bridge approach and absolutely refused to place foot thereon, but began bucking. By the time Father had the horse under control, with a loud crashing, that portion of the bridge he had tried to enter loosened and was swept away. He always said that the brute instinct of the horse saved his life, for he could not have crossed safely before this happened, had he forced the animal onto the bridge approach. <coughs> Excuse me. Father saved his wages and took up the homestead just a bit east and north of the ranch where he was employed. He bought an old team, harnesses, and wagon, four milk cows, some items of secondhand furniture from the Conley family. They were selling their holdings and moving away, and built a log cabin out of discarded telephone poles and moved our family to the homestead in the spring of 1909 when I was eight years old. Frank going on six, Christine going on four, and Henry, our second brother, had been going, born at the Northwestern Ranch during August of the year spent there. One amusing incident I recall during our stay at this place, Frank and I accompanied Father on a visit to the Evers Home Ranch at Chokin, taking along meat, eggs, and butter for use there during the busy haying season. Father was opening a gate through which we had to pass, leaving Frank to drive the team through and stop till Father closed the gate and take over again. The team did not respond to my brother's giddy-up, so he wielded the whip with disastrous results. The team bolted. The wagon seat became loosened and fell onto the bed. The eggs were pretty much broken and we were loudly crying, badly frightened children, when the team slowed to a walk, and Father was unable to catch up and control them again. Mrs. Evers was furious at the breaking of her eggs. Naturally, I had a wonderful time that day, getting acquainted with Lily, their daughter, about our age. Of the homestead experience, I cannot recall too many details. I know our first night in the new home was a very cold and pleasant one. The cracks between the poles had not yet been chinked, and a snowstorm blew up through the night. Mother bedded us three children in feather bedding between the kitchen range and the south wall. <clears throat> the baby Henry they kept warm in their bed. The ground was frozen, making it difficult to make a mixture with which to fill in the cracks. Father mixed cow and horse manure with gumbo mud, which he had to use hot water to mix it all, to make a mixture he could use for chinking. They really did know how to take care of things, didn't they? How far we've come. We sit alone in homes with devices and talking to strangers online instead of our own families. This is a fascinating point for me to uncover because it shows how we first mentally became psychologically drug into the subservient idea of, anyway, I'll get back to that more later. Um, 
So, so anyway, so Frank and I were put to work dragging dry wood from the creek to the house, which father cut into stove wood to burn. What a job. Our first barn and chicken house were made of <clears throat> cottonwood and willow tree limbs above a dugout in the hillside below the house with twigs, manure, and dirt for the roof. Of course, it leaked when it rained or when snow melted in it. Father went to work in a lambing period. That, when they were shearing sheep, I'm assuming they call it a lambing period. Okay. At Allen Gray, a nearby ranch in Big Sag. I recall being sent to take clean clothing to him on weekends in May. <clears throat> How proud I was to have my supper in the big new gray ranch house and being allowed to stay overnight with my father. But whoa, a fierce snowstorm came up through the night. Father started me on the way home at daylight the next morning taking me up the sag hill and showing me how to follow a fence line which should have taken me safely home. Okay. But the wind and snow thickened, so I lost my way. It is an awfully fearsome experience to be lost in unfamiliar territory in a snowstorm to an eight-year-old child. Luckily, father heard me crying and came out of the storm. He then took me home before returning to his work in the lambing sheds. Many sheep were lost through the bitter cold and wet of that storm, and many motherless lambs died, and father brought home to be warmed by the stove the ones who lived, and taught them to drink warm milk by sucking our fingers while holding them in the pan. We raised a large number of sheep of those lambs which survived the weather. I believe that is where father got the idea of starting a flock of sheep of his own. At any rate, he put up wild hay that first summer, enough to winter the four cows and two cows we raised. The old team and a few head of the sheep. The old team means that they bought all those old horses in the very beginning here. The second winter, an old Civil War veteran came and stayed on the homestead with us to help with the feeding and woodcutting while father went to work once again for Arthur McLeach. He spent the entire winter at the Square Butt Ranch, taking most of his wages the following spring, and he bought a hundred head of sheep, while he drove the forty miles between the ranch and our homestead. Needless to say, among the early difficulties our parents encountered, other than the natural ones of too much hard work, increment weather, no fences to speak of, not enough money to purchase needed machinery and supplies, let alone clothing and food staple for the family of four children, was far more difficult one of meeting such unpleasant difficulties as were placed in their way by the larger established large ranch holders who bitterly resented homesteading by any family as being encroachment on government lands which they looked upon as their own grazing grounds for livestock herds by reasons of years of their own grazing practices. Father and his family were among the first homesteaders to break into such grazing customs for that area, so they tried to homestead in an area where these big ranchers with all the cattle 
had already taken over. Funny how that worked out, didn't it? Just real, real amazing. So, um, Father said, as I recall, one or two ranch holdings existed between Northwest and Fort Benton on the country road across the prairies at that time. Roads were gumbo and very difficult to drive on with teams of horses during wet, wet weather, which was most of the year. That was the time of all that rain. No grading or gravel in that period of Montana history in that area. The Highwood Post Office was located across the mountains on the upper Highwood locality at that time. That whole area is called the Highwoods, if you want to look further of Montana. A rural delivery system was our only available mail delivery channel. We walked the distance three miles from our house to the mailbox once weekly to pick up mail in an effort to discourage Okay. In an effort to discourage and drive our family from the homestead, Father had to meet such experiences as having the gate of the country road access. Oh, okay. They have kind of a, it, it's, they're trying, but it's kind of confusing. But what they're saying is that Father had, had the gates of the country road access. So the Father tried to cut off the cattle from stampeding their homestead is what it sounds to me. So this required a trip to Fort Benton to find his legal rights. Father fenced his land as fast as he was able that first year, but the ranchers did not keep up their half of the fencing. Then, when our stock would encroach in grazing on their lands and adjacent government land, difficulties were made. On one such occasion, the manager of the Fort Benton Sheep Company corralled our milk cows and refused to release them until Father went to Fort Benton and obtained an order from the Sheriff's Department demanding such release. It was necessary almost daily to take our dog and drive the herd of cattle from our wheat field to make a crop that season. One such evening, a loco cow turned on Mother and downed her. However, Mother's abdomen was just grazed, so she was not injured. Our dog finally drove the cow away. Mother was pregnant with our younger sister, Alma, by that time. However, our parents persevered in spite of all of the difficulties, worked constantly and hard, and were able in due time to meet the improvement requirements and prove up on their homestead claim. When father brought home that first flock of sheep, it became the job of Frank and me to herd them. We obtained our schooling for about three years on a part-time basis in consequence. Frank would go to school three days while I herded sheep, then I would go to school three days while he did his stint. We did not have full nine months of school yearly in those early years either. Usually a second term would run from three to seven months, depending on how much money was allocated to the area for the year. We attended, we attended at the old log cabin school up the creek until I was in the fifth grade. Then we attended 
one season at Ludic's old house. People did, um, they housed, they had kids come and be taught at houses and they put up teachers. And, you know, it's kind of a deal. One of the pleasures, anyway, I missed a big part here that's important. As influx of homesteads began on the prairie lanes, the third year after we settled on our homestead and the entire prairie became thickly settled in a period of about two years. Thickly settled, right? So, yeah, thickly settled. Big influx of population, mass movement, right? So, um, one of the pleasures of our childhood was looking over the prairie areas from mountain heights after they became settled. It was like a giant checkerboard of wheat farms and gold. Wheat farming was the most general cropping practice. The crops were good the first years, as I recall. 40 bushels per acre was a, was a very general expectation, every even in drought years. Father kept his sheep, sheep flock about two years. Then he learned that one could not successfully mix sheep and cattle grazing on the same ground. The necessity of putting more acreage into alfalfa hay for winter feed, cutting down on grazing, and we children were very happy to see the last of those sheep, believe me. So they started to realize at that point the grazing was becoming a problem. Nevertheless, Mother always said it was the sheep which enabled them to hold on through the most difficult period of those early homesteading years, particularly the second year, which was the year the railroad was built between Lewistown and Great Falls, Montana. The Milwaukee ran trains daily at that time between the two towns. Highwood came into being that same year. I can recall the first two buildings being a bank and a general, salor, general store and saloon. I can recall mother stopping at the store on her way home from having delivered sheep, which father butchered, milk, eggs, butter, and such ranch produce to the railroad camps along the line. The line being built, oh, this kind of muggles a lot. They were in, mother was there, their mother was there doing these things, and they were in there. The line was being built. They could buy bananas, oranges, and fruit, and they had them in our, as our noon meal, which was a rare treat indeed. Father would buy boxes of fresh apples each fall with winter supplies of sugar, flour, with winter supplies of sugar, flour, coffee, dried apples, dried prunes, raisins, and clothing were purchased. These were doled out to us in quarters. We ate even the seeds greedily. Father was the only family member to have a pair of overshoes for the winter storms for the first few years. Frank and I wrapped gunny sacks around our shoes and legs to try to keep our feet warm and dry while out watching the sheep in winter snowstorms. We never knew what it was to go through a winter without being frostbitten those first few years. That was painful. About the time I left home in my 14th year, father was in the process of switching pretty much to cattle raising. We were milking quite a string of cows when I left, and mother had been shipping cream to creameries at Great Falls, Great Falls, Montana. Uh, 
This was a main source of their income during the year. Father raised wheat during the war years for a cash crop but dwindled down to just raising cattle thereafter with only grain and hay crops as were needed for our own feeding stock. In time, shipping cattle for beef became the major source of income, although mother and the younger children continued to milk cows and cream and eggs continued to be our source of income to meet our needs throughout the year. Mother took up some rock and timber claim land adjacent to a track of 80 acres of desert claim land. Then brought, then she brought out the homesteading her brother. Boy, this gets very confusing, but let me try to wrap it up here without. So, mother took up, uh, I believe father's holdings amounted to some, 808 acres of land at the time he deeded the place to the two teenager boys with life interest to mother. Father died November 11, 1952 on the homestead at Highwood, Montana and was buried in Great Falls. Well, pretty tough people, wouldn't you say? I think that part of this is it's been... They've been scrambling our brains for so many things that people are frozen in place for a lot of reasons now. So anyway, so I'll finish off with his story and um, a song about magic. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.